Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are discussing Kyle Baker and Andrew Helfer's The Shadow and Justice Incorporated. I had so much fun reading these comics. I, just, comic. I, I thought uh, The Shadow especially is just... Uh, I know, so bright, colorful, weird hilarious there's really nothing quite like it in my experience with comics there's two storylines in helfer and baker run seven deadly fins and body and soul but you don't necessarily need to know that to appreciate them what's what's just as fun is baker's art is exaggerated kind of almost mad magazine style and Helfer's story is so over the top and bright and ridiculous. And they are such a good pairing for each other on this work where Baker just is so wonderful with these kind of lampoonish faces, yet which are very simply drawn, but also very comedic. Like there's so much, so much implied in his art. I, he, again, he's like such a unique cartoonist, especially at this time. Because you look at any random page, and although he uses a minimal number of lines, there's so the faces and bodies and attitudes and approaches are also vivid that the, the art kind of pops off the page. So I love this. And then in contrast, the Justice Inc. two-part miniseries is dark and a little mysterious, kind of transgressive, and they're uh, they're a really interesting pair for each other. So curious what you thought. Well, I, I love them too. I, I think they're great comics. They pay to be revisited over and over again. I think I've read these probably all the way through half dozen times or more. And I always find something new that I missed, some detail. They're very rich without being too crowded. Uh, there's, I mean, true to the shadow, it's a, well, at least it's, uh, the shadow is shaken, re-envisioned it. It's a, um, um, a large cast of characters, ensemble cast, but where in the first six issues, I think Helfer stumbled a little bit with that setup. Maybe it was a little too crowded. There were too many villains maybe too much going on here. He seems to have found his, his stride. Mm -hmm. He seems to have gotten comfortable with the material. He's playing fast and loose with everything. It's, I said it was irreverent to begin with. I mean, now it's even more irreverent. Uh, the, the meta fictional stuff is starting to creep in a little bit, especially with the seventh issue where they're mentioning like, you know, stud magazine, <laughs> having a cover story on the shadow. And, um, you know, the second annual being so, sort of a send up to Citizen Kane. I mean, it's just, well, no, not sort of a send up to Citizen Kane, a send up to Citizen yeah. Kane. Uh, at the least whole, the pastiche, yeah. Right. The whole um, weekend at Bernie's set up to the body and soul storyline. Um, using a Brian Eno song as the inspiration to the title for the second storyline, Seven Deadly Fins. I mean, Body and Soul is a is a song title as well. Um, the Kyle Baker, I mean, I think it's important to note with Kyle Baker, you know, on his end, 
this was his first real showcase up until that point he had only done and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i've looked at his bibliography and i've followed his career from the almost from the get-go and up until that point it'd been mostly fill-in art and inking of other people's stuff he hadn't really ever done full pencil and ink artwork on a comic before at least nothing of this length right and he just he is firing on all cylinders i mean he is in top form already from the very start i mean kyle baker is i i've incredible i have utmost respect for his artistry he's he's a great cartoonist he's a great comic book artist and i mean talk about right out of the gate being um a versatile and interesting comic book artist who really understands uh cartooning and storytelling and he can take this andrew andrew helfer script which is just kind of all over the place mm-hmm. and turn it into something that's fun and um approachable um i like i like your comparison to mad magazine i think that's absolutely appropriate it hadn't occurred to me before you said that but now that you mentioned it absolutely it reminds me quite a bit of those mad magazine send-ups um the, the um i know i did notice that his artwork is definitely in keeping with the stuff that he was doing outside of his independent projects uh in particular uh, the cowboy wally show which he was working on just before he worked on this so he's got the same eight panel most mostly with some exceptions it's eight panels per page the size and and the arrangement of those panels change i mean it's not a static panel system but it is eight panels per page for the most part and he deviates from that somewhat but he i'd keeps say the eight panels per page way. kind of contributes to the story in, in a way because there's so much going on and because Helfer has to balance so many different things. Having this kind of consistent meter gives everything kind of a place to sit. Uh, I don't think there's any full page spreads except on the splash pages. Everything is just kind of in service of the actual storyline. And that really kind of emphasizes it. And, and like you're implying too, there's so much in here that's parody or satire or just making fun in general of the tropes of this work. I mean, for goodness sake, right? I mean, this is no spoiler since the comic came out 30 plus years ago. Uh, He kills the shadow and the shadow essentially stays dead for almost the entirety of the second storyline that we're talking about. And then when he gets reborn, it's in this very strange way that we'll talk about also. So like he's immediately like the, the title character of the book isn't just out of the book, but he's completely out of the book. This isn't just one issue where we have a focus on supporting characters. There's people trying to dress like him, people trying to act like him. There's this crazy storyline with the inoculator. Yes. Uh, which is another one of the, the Shadows agents becoming his own kind of folk hero, uh, hero slash villain. It's, it's also wild. You just feel like there's all these plates that are spinning out of control, and yet they're keeping them all in balance right yeah yeah and i think that was an antidote to the wildness of bill sienkiewicz's artwork 
a feeling out of place with the storyline. Right, well, and that's the thing, right? Sienkiewicz, maybe a lot of what we disliked about Sienkiewicz is just that it was too out of control. There was no real grounding in the Sienkiewicz art. Everything was all over the place. You notice also that Baker really likes the straight on views on people. A lot, much of the time we are looking straight as if we are standing on the same level as these people, you know? It, the camera's about at five and a half, six feet up. True. And therefore, like we are almost like experiencing what's happening through the eyes of a surrogate character who's watching everything. Uh, it's not cinematic in the same way that we think of cinematic storytelling and certainly not cinematic in the way that Sienkiewicz draws the book in that, you know, he's kind of using every moment for maximum impact. But I'd say that because of the way the book is put together, it has more impact and it really fits Helfer's storyline better. Yeah, I mean, the, the Seven Deadly Fins, in a way, the storyline is pretty straightforward. It's just the shadow and his, and his crew uh, taking on a mob family, the Fins, each one of whom represents one of the Seven Deadly Sins. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, okay it's you know that's a pretty that's a capsule uh tv guide <laughs> style summary of it but everything that's going on in here is just it's a send-up to not just a pulp fi fiction and film noir and uh private detective tropes there's a private detective character in there uh mafia movies you know that were of course popular at the time that the shadow uh, was popular in in the 1930s. Uh, there were quite a few mob movies, right? You know, like Scarface and things like that. So, so there's definitely a, a, an enormous amount of self awareness going on uh, in this uh, storyline. Um, but at the same time, it's not limited to that. It's also just almost kind of like uh you know the, one of the stages of of comedy is that comedy you know you go up to a certain point with satire and then with with a, absurd comedy you go past that point mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's what they're doing all over this book is just uh you know it's satire but it doesn't stop there i mean it's just like almost like a, a, a circus i mean it just it goes beyond the point of satire it's just uh it doesn't even take itself seriously enough to be satire in in the in the sense what you would say like a satire is or can be an intellectual exercise in this case it's just like um, they're almost making fun of themselves making fun of this stuff <laughs> so you said you've read these books five or six times that implies that there's another level there that you're appreciating right right and I, I think that level that I just described is something that didn't really occur to me until this most recent time of reading it is that Helfer and Baker they're not taking the subject matter seriously but they're also not taking themselves seriously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is refreshing you know especially at this time uh in the mid 80s i mean this this now we're talking is 
post Watchmen. It's it, now we're starting to get into the, you know, the, the grim and gritty um, uh, sort of tone taking over mainstream comics in the late '80s, and this is such a refreshing antidote to that. In much the same way that Helfer's edited uh, Justice League was as well. Um, I'd say it's not even tied to the time. I think even reading it now, there's just this oh, curve to it. There's this, like, I don't know what's going to happen next element to it that right. is, it feels like a modern movie. Yeah. yeah. It feels like one of those movies where the story bounces around and eventually kind of makes sense. But in the end, you're just grooving on the great characters and the crazy moments they get themselves into. Right. I mean, like, for example, the the Finns uh, hire this uh, Middle Eastern sort of, um, I guess he would be a hitman or, or something of that sort to retaliate against the shadow. And he, in turn, hires a bunch of criminals. I mean, but not just criminals. These are complete and total psychopaths, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it breaks them out of prison and I mean, for example, there's uh, what issue is it in? And there's five or six of them, and uh, yeah, there, there's one who's basically a serial killer. There's another one who's just this kind of fat slob who just likes to kill. And yeah. systematically, Helfer and Baker just kind of deflate them all. At the same right. time, they're doing the same thing to the the deadly fins, and right. it, it, it's just like continually they're continually topping each other again and again. Right. So, I mean, it never would have occurred to me in a million years that the, the, the mob, these, these, these Finns, they're not the mob, but they're a, they're a crime family that, you know, that they would enlist a, this Middle Eastern guy who would in turn enlist five criminal psychopaths to be the, you know, to be the uh, a retributive force against the shadow and his gang. And it, it's just like, well, where did that come from? I mean, it's just... Mm-hmm completely out of left field i mean pure imagination and not only that i mean i think one of them um, it's in issue um 11 on page 15 and they've got these like you know id cards of um each of the criminals that they have hired and um you know like one of them whose name is leland kemper which i thought was interesting because uh, uh, there's a fam- famous, infamous serial killer named Edmund Kemper who uh, had murdered, had committed a series of murders in California uh, in the 1970s of um, uh, uh, girls, uh, college girls who were hitchhiking. Uh, so it's a, a famous case. I mean, the name Kemper, nobody hears that name and who knows anything about criminal history and doesn't think of Edmund Kemper. It's like saying, um, it's like saying the, the name Bundy. It automatically yeah. has that, you know, that, yeah, it, it already has that baggage with it. But this guy uh, is pretending that he's dead. And, you know, his, his head is permanently sort of like leaning over like he's... Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just absolutely bizarre and that you know there's that other guy the uh edward flax uh who's the uh, the german doctor uh molecular biologist uh who is, um, is all you know, yeah 
completely messed yeah, up. Yeah, stabbed and, and full of warts and everything. And he's uh, replaced all of his uh, teeth with that little gas thing, which made, made me immediately think of Dune. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it being the most important element of that storyline, too. Right. And it ends up being the most important element to the storyline. This this totally bizarre plan that he has to uh, equip himself with these teeth that have this noxious gas inside them. And when he breaks them, the, the poison comes out. And, you know, it's going to be his his sort of uh, fallback position in case he's uh, accosted that he can work his way out by poisoning a, a, anybody who comes between him and the shadow. And then, of course, you know, obviously said spoiler alerts but that that ends up being the thing that kills the shadow and it's and it's purely by accident i mean they they go through this entire six issue series of all of these um plans foiled by the fins uh, each one of them is taken out in a way that's just totally um just unnecessarily complex, the methods that they uh, go about getting rid of these guys. Uh, and, and each one of them dies in a way that's just, like, like you said, it's like something out of Mad Magazine. It's just <laughs> like a spy versus a couple, night style death, yeah. Talk about a couple of the deaths. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, let's see. Well, I do like the uh, the hot dog. Uh, one of the Finns is a hot dog manufacturer who makes hot dogs, and several of their victims end up in the hot dog vats. And then, uh, you know, this is discovered because one of the guys uh, is where he's got a, a diamond uh, on his person, and somebody ends up biting into the hot dog and biting into the diamond. And then, in order to cover up that murder, the Finns come up with this plan to say that if you bite into a hot dog uh you may or may not bite into a diamond and they make they turn it into a into a uh what do you call it um like a contest yeah like well, a campaign the, yeah this, and this uh, is the spider web of the comedy here it's like right, one little weird little incident end up triggering this whole thing with the guy biting into the diamond he, he feels like he's rich and in order to cover it up cover up the murder then they have to have this contest and the contest goes wrong and then just goes on everything just splinters out why right. you know one crazy thing triggers 20 other crazy things and nothing yeah, ever and really one of, the, one of the shadows um henchmen dewitt one of my one of my favorites one of helfer's characters that he created uh dewitt poses as a uh Food and Drug Administration investigator who goes to discuss the um, camp the campaign that they have for selling hot dogs by you know if you bite into a hot dog and you know the the whole argument that well this is a danger to the public if they're going to be biting into hot dogs and possibly injuring themselves or choking and you know he has this whole plan that he's going to pay him off with these hot dogs that he has in a refrigerator in his room that have already got you know like diamonds stuffed into them. And, uh, you know, DeWitt's just posing as this FBA guy. And then he ends up taking the payoff and saying, well, you know, I think we can maybe overlook it this time. And then <laughs> the real FBA guy shows up, you know, and it's like this comedy trope. It's almost like something out of a sitcom or something, you know, like an 80s sitcom that right. just sort of, uh, well, you, your question was name one of these interesting deaths. And I mean, they're so, um, 
they're so uh, convoluted in a way that it's kind of hard to uh, <laughs> to summarize it without taking up too much time. But um, I mean, I think there's that. I, my favorite one, I think, is uh, the one where just following up on the the hot dog fin and a funny death. To give you an example, now that now that fin is in prison, and uh, Dewitt ends up in prison as well because he's you know I mean uh, gotten himself into prison. I forget the reason why, but uh, he's in prison. Uh, Dewitt, the same one who posed as a as a um, Oh, that's it. He's DeWitt is living on the streets. He's he's got no uh, right. means of support anymore. So he decides to he's in a bar drowning his sorrows. And he decides to hit a cop in the face and, and just so he can be in prison. You know, I'll get three square square meals a day. I'll have a roof over my head. It'll be a, an improvement to my situation now. And so he ends up in prison. And who does he see but the very thin? Uh, who tried to bribe him with the hot dogs. And then oh. that is sitting there having his lunch and he sees DeWitt and he says, you're, you know, you're the guy who landed me in prison. You know, you're, you're the one who, who got me in trouble. And he starts to choke on his food and then he just chokes to death and his face falls right into his meal and he dies. And DeWitt's sort of sitting there. He hasn't even really sat down yet. He's still holding his tray. And he says, was it something I said? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's just that sort of thing. And it, it, you know, reminded me in a way of like the Simpsons during, during the, the, the golden age of the Simpsons, uh-huh. when, when they would, they would land a joke early in the show. And then they would kind of like build upon the joke as the show went on in a really creative way. The one I always think of is they're having a, a flea market or, a, you know, a, a garage sale thing on their block. Marge is going through all their stuff and she lifts up this jacket and it says, are you sure you want to get home? Are you sure you want to get rid of this uh, leather jacket? And he says, yeah, I don't wear it anymore. And on the back, it had sequined uh, disco stew. And she says, who's disco stew? And she said, and, and Homer says, uh, it was supposed to say disco stud, but I ran out of room. Okay. <laughs> that on its face is funny. You know, that's, that's a funny joke. But then a few beats later, there's people, they're showing people going through all their stuff. And there's this guy in full disco regalia. And this guy turns to him and says, hey, Stu, you should buy that jacket. <laughs> right. And that's hilarious. And then Disco Stu says, you know, Disco Stu doesn't advertise. And then, of course, they ended up making that into a repeat, a, you know, repeated uh, character throughout the show. And and it's there's that sort of magic at work in this comic, like, like you said, there these these completely bizarre, off the wall, from out of nowhere subplots come into play, and then Helford just lets them build and build and build, and in really interesting and funny ways. Like I said, with the one uh, those fins who get killed by the explosive device, that explosive device gets mentioned like an issue or two earlier, and then it just sort of like weaves its way into that moment. Mm-hmm. And then it explodes and, you know, it's just, it's brilliant. And you never see it coming. That's what, like you said, I mean, there's just this constant element of surprise. You're always sort of taken off guard or you're all, you're, you know, uh, it's completely unpredictable, uh, but it pays off. It never seems forced. 
It this just isn't some fun. Chris Claremont story. The the, uh, the storylines pay off. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> right. it's so uh, it's so un it's so yeah unpredictable. There's times when it really feels like a shaggy dog story, and yet everything kind of adds up. It's just it, it's unlike any other kind of comic writing. There's the whole scene where Artie Finn is in the hospital and is all body cast. For, I think he gets blown up in the explosion you're talking about. And somehow he ends up getting put next to his brother, Errol, Errol <laughs> Finn, which is, you know, another Errol one of the Finn, first yeah. thing, which is these, these puns. Long story short, uh, they're lying next to each other. Uh, for whatever reason, Artie decides to trade beds with Errol. And then the shadow comes in thinking he's killing his arch enemy, Artie, and he ends up killing Errol and walks away. And then Artie is furious about it. And now it's my turn, he swears. And it's like, wait, who, who would do any of this stuff? Why would you change beds? Why does this make any sense? And yet it all kind of just fits this kind of anarchic spirit to the whole thing. He thinks, he thinks Errol has a, a more comfortable looking bed. <laughs> yeah, that's all the it whole, is. The whole thing is predicated on an, a total absurdity. Right. Absurdity is a great word for it. There's all this just almost random craziness. And yet so much of this book built from characters. Right. Yes. And okay, they may be three-dimensional in the same way that Homer and Marge and Bart and Lisa are. They're, all the characters in this book have these quirks and these complexities. You see it especially coming through in the annual where we're given the time to really know more about these people and find that like all their complexities are even more enjoyable because of that. Uh, you know, everyone's got a backstory. Everyone has a reason they, they've come to this point in their life of serving the shadow. Everyone has their own kind of uh, approach to what they want out of it. it it's just right. all so wonderful. Even that cab driver who's been chasing around all the shadow minions just because one guy stiffed them on a, on a fair in like issue four. Mm -hmm. And he pops up again in issue 10, you know, chasing after uh, a couple of the minions and yelling at him because he wants, he wants his fare. It's like that better off dead joke. You know, I want my $2. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then, but then he ends up becoming one of the shadows minions as well. And, and, and even he ends up being like a fun and enjoyable character. He was just some like one note joke from six issues before. And now, you know, He's one of the one of the cast. Percy Jennifer. <laughs> right. Always talking about his name too. I'm Percy Jennifer. Can't do that accent at all. So no. He's Jamaican. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean it's just hilarious. I mean, like he ends they end up going up to the uh after that explosion happens in issue eleven. Uh the the you know, well one of the fins is running and, it, and the fin is the youngest fin too which appropriately enough he's almost a boy and he's running a prostitution you know a, a whorehouse essentially and uh that uh, a bomb goes off there and so of course the police have to show up well the uh the police chief shows up because he left his hat and his coat yeah <laughs> in the whorehouse and so he's got to get up there and then as he's going up he sees the uh shadows minions walking down 
and that Rastafarian uh, cab driver is wearing his his uh, hat and his jacket, you know, because he thinks it looks good or whatever, <laughs> you know. And so he's got to make up some story. And nobody uh, nobody who saw him go in even questions the fact that when he went in, he wasn't wearing his uniform, and when he comes out, he is, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's lost on. There's all these news reporters there, but nobody thinks to mention anything about it, you know. Yeah, well, the horror um, the House of Babes, which I love also. The House of Babes, yeah, right. The House of Babes. It's just one laugh after, just as a final thought on, on the Seven Deadly Fins. I think that's my personal favorite story arc because it, well, it's, it's relatively self-contained. I mean, I know the shadow sort of expires at the end unexpectedly, which is a cliffhanger, but I mean, the major storyline plot line is resolved, unlike mm -hmm. Body and Soul. It's not resolved at all, but, um, well, it's resolved in a way, but it's a cliffhanger of a different sort. Um, you know, instead of him being dead, now he's alive. Well, where do we go from there? Uh, but Seven Deadly Fins, to me, it's almost like, you know, I know we had spoken personally and I had said to you, some of my favorite films, are those where every scene, every line of dialogue contributes in some substantial or necessary way toward the overall picture. And you had said, well, some of my favorites are, are the ones that don't or where it meanders in interesting ways. And, uh, right. Uh, feels, it feels more lifelike to you or, or, or possibly has more life to it. And I had to, backtrack and say well i did i did say some some of my favorite movies are like okay that. uh they they tend to be that i enjoy and men always think of as uh, the big lebowski uh by the coen brothers and the coen brothers and are are an excellent example of filmmakers who are able to do both you know so for no country for old men there's not an extraneous shot or line of dialogue in the entire film and then big lebowski the whole movie is extraneous <laughs> right well i mean and you could say the same thing for helfer and, and baker right because justice yeah, incorporated I, I, is a very tight story yes it is yeah like justice incorporated is like the no country for old men and the seven deadly fins is like the big lebowski equivalent yeah uh, but i would much prefer I, mean, I love justice incorporated i think it's an incredibly well we'll talk about it i think it's incredibly well constructed uh 96 page comic uh that has a, a, a almost like um, perfect dramatic structure, but Seven Deadly Fins I would much rather read than Justice Incorporated. It's kind of like I've read Justice Incorporated a few times. I get the point. It's an excellent comic, but I feel like I've digested it. You know, I feel like I understand the parameters of it and what it's getting at and what you know what it's trying to deliver on. I I sort of got the point the first time. But Seven Deadly Fins is just like, I don't know what it is about it, but it's just every time I read it, there's some new detail. There's some new thing that grabs me that maybe I escaped my notice the first time or something I found to be trite. Now I find hilarious. So here, I'll, I'll give you a uh, proposal to play with, which is, <laughs> I think a little bit of what we talked about when we did the Hitchcock podcast for the film series, which is there's a lot of reality outside the borders of this book. And that what we're seeing on the page is just a few examples of what all is happening in these people's lives. 
And because of that, there's this vivid energy to Helfer and Baker's shadow, where these are people who are doing a lot and we're just getting to spend some time together. We're getting some slice of their life. And because of that, we're getting kind of the highlights of what they're doing, the, the biggest moments of what's going on in their lives. And it, it's kind of got this wonderful, effortless hyper intensity to it. And I think we see this a lot in Body and Soul. For example, the, let's see, the inoculator storyline and also the uh, storyline of the brothers as they go into the, the uh, strange town in Tibet, the lawless town in Tibet. There are probably 50 adventures in that town that yeah. the brothers are having. The town called right. Malice, by the way, also another like great little reference there. It's the old song by the jam, which at the time was probably just off the charts. I mean, again, it's <laughs> like all this kind of random shit thrown in. So it just feels like there's just so much happening here that, that that's a lot of what I, I enjoy it about it. And like, I think the Chaken Mini had the same element to it, but what we saw off the panel was really not that exciting. It's all tied to Chaken's kind of unique perversities. Here, it's so much more open and full of energy and life that we want to spend more time with these people. I'm not sure I want to spend time with the Chaken version of these characters. And then one more thing, because so much of the story happens without the shadow on stage, I think it's pretty clear the shadow of Lamont Cranston or all those different identities are the least interesting part of this whole storyline. And without a doubt, the thing that Helfer is least interested in, the more time he spends off stage, the more the book benefits from that. Whereas the Avengers always front and center in Justice Inc. for good reason, right? It really is his story, right. um, his coming, uh, his his understanding the reality of the manipulations he's been through. Uh, the shadow is not, he, he's never gonna change. He's never gonna evolve. And every other character in the storyline is continually evolving. There's a long-winded answer of saying, yeah, I just think there's a lot going on here and that makes it really fun. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely on the mark about that. Um, I didn't miss the shadow at all uh, during body and soul. I, I I thought it was kind of telling that Lamont Cranston could be as interesting dead as he is alive. Is certainly he's certainly more fun to be around in a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's less dangerous, I yeah. guess. Um the before we get into body and soul, I did though want to talk about the second annual because that does sort of sit comfortably between the two storylines. It's mm -hmm. bookended as sort of like his life passing before his eyes as he's expiring. That's how it's structured. And what I love about it is that it begins with this fake kind of Pathé newsreel. Uh, and it, it's meant to mimic um Susan Kane, these the opening of Susan Kane, which is also like a newsreel. The studio head who uh is it turns out is watching this uh film uh as uh, it's being shown to him. Uh you know, he stands up and says, you know, uh his name's Sid Bagleton, which I thought was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> He's enough. supposed to be yeah. like 
Yeah, like this Jewish. Um, I guess it's okay because Andrew Helfer is Jewish, right? So <laughs> I guess he's maybe he's making fun of uh, his own uh, ethnicity. It, it, maybe that's okay then. But it seemed a little too it, nowadays. It seems a little uncomfortable. He's like, why am I watching this instead of a Star Trek rerun? You know. So there was this private detective who was a, a, a minor character in, in, in the first couple of storylines. And he had this um, intern who was shadowing him, which I thought was hilarious in and of itself. You know, private detectives have interns shadowing them, right? <laughs> right. And uh, he, he sort of stumbles into this uh, 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 showing of this, of this, this documentary. And uh, he says, you know, Bagleton, you know, wants some real, he wants some real uh, information on, on, uh, on the shadow, on the life of, of Lamont Cranston. And uh, this guy says, uh, I was there when he died, you know, the, this, this kid, this uh, in, a PI intern. And uh, he said, you know, just before he died, he said the, the name, the name of Lenore. And of course, that's like, uh, in Citizen Kane, he says, uh, Rosebud, right? Mm -hmm. And he's referring to his sled. For those of you who haven't seen Citizen Kane yet, just ruined it for you. So the producer says, you know, go find out why he said Lenore, you know. And so that's that's sort of the, the structure of it. And then this young kid goes and he's interviewing uh, all of the Shadows uh, henchmen and former henchmen. Uh, and they are telling, and he's asking what could Lenore possibly mean? And they're, you know, searching their memories and they either can or cannot come up with the theory, but essentially what they do is they all tell him the stories of, you know, either how they came to know the shadow or come to work for him. And so you get all this really interesting backstory um, about uh, not the shadow so much as the the characters who we have now in, with, you know, the helpful run come to sort of know and love, right? You know, the the supporting characters who have more or less become the main characters as the shadow has increasingly sort of taken a back seat uh, and, and will especially take a back seat in, in the final storyline. But all of these stories are, you know, they're interesting. He, Helfer manages to tie up a lot of the um, sort of loose ends or the things that were left uh, unexplained in the shaken, you know, all the plot holes that shaken had introduced about, you know, like, how it was that Ken Allard hadn't aged in so many years and things like that. He sort of fills in those gaps and he does it in a way that doesn't seem forced. It actually seems like in a really satisfying and, and believable way. And almost this, this annual to me, kind of like in a way, ties the whole thing together. It brings in the, the shaken shadow material and sort of absorbs that into the overall storyline that Helfer and Baker have introduced and uh, it also sort of gives you all the backstory for all the supporting characters and their character motivations and why it is that they are the way that they are and uh, but it's all it, it's just like a it's extremely well crafted 44 pages it manages to do in those 44 pages you know uh, so much more than Shaken did in his 96 or whatever it was, in my opinion. It also calls back to the old pulps because the stories of Margot and Harry are pretty much right out of the pulp stories. Then he, right. Yeah. And also the stories all have 
some element of tragedy to them, which also brings yeah. this other layer of our appreciation of these characters because they've all been through so much. I mean, Harry is literally about to commit suicide. It makes us appreciate him so much more as a character. Margot a long way of explaining these characters' motivations as to why they stick around mm -hmm. with this guy who is on the surface of things, a criminal <laughs> who's going around indiscriminately killing other criminals. Yes, but you know, uh, the legal system being what it is in the United States, he's he's a uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a criminal. And how it is that he sort of like um, gave meaning to their lives. I mean, it's nowhere more obvious uh, or poignant is the word I'm looking poignant, for. Yeah. The first storyline where one of his, Harry, uh, is contemplating suicide and he's going to jump from that bridge and he's you know, saved at the last minute by Ken Allard as Lamont Cranston and brought into this life that has meaning, you know, that they're contributing in some way by ridding society of these evils. And they may not be doing it in the most legal way possible, but these were lost people. These were damaged people. Um, we talked so much about the anarchism of the other stories in this era, but this story is straight ahead, straight up kind of character building. And Helford does just as good a job here. Right. Things don't feel as random. They feel more kind of controlled, plot-driven. Uh, they've got a much more serious vein, and yet they still have this energy and life to them, too, that just builds your passion for these characters. At least it does for me. I think with the annuals and with, you know, with Justice Incorporated, I think that more limited page count contributed to that tightness and that focus in a way that these six-parters don't. I, I think Helfer kind of feels like in a six-parter, he can really just kind of like, you know, stretch out, yeah. take his time, go into crazy subplots and so on. And then in these more focused annuals, like an annual one and annual two, or in the one-parter with uh, Marshall, you know, uh, issue seven, it, you know, he can do both. He can do these extremely um, focused, tight, plot-driven storylines, and he can do them well. And but he can also do the the crazy Shaggy Dog stories that just go all over the place. Yeah, well, and there was no one else who was doing six-part storylines at that time. No, nope. essentially, Alfred was the first one to do that in an extended comic series. I mean, we're still, I think, a year away from Sandman debuting. I believe Sam had debuts in 91. So this is a couple of years away from that. Uh, I want to keep well, going because we, we have yeah. consumed a, a good amount of time. Body and Soul, though, is, it feels so plotless and yet so much happens. And going back and rereading it right after I just finished it, I was kind of amazed by how he juggles these storylines and how the whole thing just all kind of builds on itself. I mean, we start out with all the ages dressed as the shadow and all trying their own adventures as the shadow. And then it moves into the inoculator and then, you know, it moves into the rebirth of, of the shadow himself. Uh, we've got the whole sidebar of the Avenger, the Justice Incorporated character right. being pulled into it. 
more as a, a goofy counterpart than as the serious character we'll see in the other storyline. If anything, he's he's got more pathos than anything, trying to keep up with these anarchist personalities. I mean, he seems almost overwhelmed by the insanity all around him. The body and soul storyline is just kind of over the top anarchic until we get to chapter six and we start to see Lamont or the shadow being reborn. And even there, there's just so freaking much happening. It's, it's almost an overwhelming experience, which I loved. Yeah, I, I noticed that both Seven Deadly Fins and Body and Soul both begin with these sort of random, bizarre killings, random, mm-hmm. bizarre murders that just sort of happen out of nowhere. I mean, in Body and Soul, it's that one guy with the, with the kind of like pitchfork shoving it into the guy's throat in the bar. And then in this one, it's these two thieves who are stealing jewelry. And then I right. guess their practice after thieving is to toss people off of their balconies heads or tails Um, heads or tails right (laughs) you know and it's just like it's it really sets the tone it really encapsulates that that element of surprise that's you know all throughout all these uh shadow comics the directionlessness of his minions and them dressing up as uh, in the shadow costumes and continuing the mission of fighting crime, you know, that's that's fun and interesting. And it's it's enjoyable to watch them struggle with that. Underlines the fact that these were lost people who really didn't have any direction in their lives until Kent Lards at Cranston came into their lives. Nothing else it is that they can think of to do except Gowitz, which is another for invent character who becomes the inoculator which is replacing the shadow to, to dye himself completely green for some reason <laughs> completely unknown reason <laughs> completely because all the agents really believe in the mission right so they may have they all really been, believe in the mission right they're, they're all invested uh you know and they're they're all in there and they're black hats ready to ready to try and find the secret of this these two men who were throwing everyone off the building and so like yeah in some ways they it shows the amount of care they have about what they're doing they don't even need the shadow in order to to be who they are to live their lives Um, and they really are their own kind of surrogate family too these are all people who are essentially alone there's only the one couple both of whom are the shadows agents uh, but they're all happy to hang out there in that room inside the subway tunnel because that's really that's the they're the home for the family, so to speak. For DeWitt, he has no other home. For most of the other people, there's actually a home. There's that crazy scene where he gets evicted from the from the junkyard. I love that scene with DeWitt. That's right. With the uh the uh, uh nuclear waste being dumped on his roof. Yeah. Yeah, and he says, well, "This is where I live." And the guys say, "Well, you better find it somewhere else. <laughs> you better find a new home. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dump." <laughs> the storyline with the two sons taking Cranston's body back to Shambhala to somehow restore it or bring him back to life uh, with that with their technology, uh, and then they end up along the way ending up in that communist town called malice which you know that splash page on issue 15 when they first walk in 
I mean that if that's not a Mad Magazine splash page, I don't know what is. There's this like all of this, this just like disparate group of people who have all just sort of ended up there from one circumstance versus another, and they've all this motley crew has just ended up uh, in this complete antithesis to Shambhala, right? It's yeah, <laughs> anything but advanced, and their misadventures and trying to make their way out of this town and either being assisted by or prevented uh, various characters. It's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's hard to take it too seriously, especially with where they end up going in the final issue with this, this just completely off-the-wall revival of Lamont Cranston by placing his now... Uh, during their transport of his body back to Shambhala, he, he was decapitated. <laughs> and so now they've placed his decapitated head um, onto this robotic body. And all I could think of was, you know, RoboCop. Yeah. Which was, you know, like a huge movie. And when did that come out? In 87? Mm-hmm. So I can't help but feel that they didn't have Robotech on, in mind when, when they were crafting this masterpiece <laughs> i think they were i think they were also hoping to mock marvel comics i mean obviously the cover of the issue is oh know, yeah like a stan lee comic and yeah. god only knows where it would have gone i know you found the solicits for the future issues they'll give us and there is heavy metal madness promised in the shadow number 21 so maybe that's part of it Man, yeah that the, the kirby the curve jack kirby proportions on the cover are painfully obvious yeah and inside the issue too like instead of being the guy who's shooting people and taking his revenge he's just throwing people around like he's orion of the new gods or something right uh, and bullets don't even affect him right and suddenly this is going to be a completely different comic although probably exactly the same comic at the same time and then shy with khan also becomes a robot embedded villain I mean, God only knows what yeah. would have happened, but it would have been completely anarchic, completely ridiculous. Well, there was an, a brief synopsis of issues 20 through 24 in Amazing Heroes, which I found. I, I'll, I'll read you very quickly, just, just to give you and our audience, whoever listens to this, an idea of the kind of insanity that this comic embodies. Uh, Issue 20 begins the nuts and bolts storyline and the shadow who has his head placed on a robot body is back and he is pissed. First and foremost, he wants his ring back. This ring is the source of his mind altering powers. So we're back to the ring being the source of his mind altering powers, by the way, Uh, which was something that Shaken had sort of rolled back, but apparently Helfer likes that. So uh, the ring is the source of his mind-altering powers, and it has fallen into the hands of a rock star, Odessa Steps. Odessa and her band have been using the ring to throw their rock concert audiences into a frenzy, and the Shadow wants her bad. In the meantime, the Shadow's nemesis, Shawan Khan, has also undergone the fashionable robotic treatment. He has gotten the doctors from Shangri-La to, I, I think they mean Shambhala, but yeah. Or, yeah, to build his body into that of a robot too. And not too surprisingly, by issue number 23, these two robotic forces must clash in physical combat. This is all leading up to what Andy Helfer calls the strangest capper to the strangest book ever. 
It will be a truly surreal experience. Issue number 24 will be the end of the storyline, and it will also be the end of Andy Helfer and Kyle Baker's tenure on the book. Oh, so they were going to go just another six issues, huh? Well, I, I think maybe the, the implication was, now maybe we should address it because everybody else does whenever they talk about it. The series was uh, unceremoniously canceled. Uh, so there was no issue number 20. There was no resolution to the storyline. I don't know if any pages exist uh, to that storyline. And uh, there's conflicting there's conflicting stories as to why it was canceled. Some say it was because Condé Nast didn't like the way that Helfer and Baker were going with its portrayal of their character. I find that maybe a little unconvincing after what Shaken did with the character and then, you know, 19 issues of this and they were almost two years into this run that they finally decided enough was enough. Right. I mean, maybe. Uh, and then uh, Kyle Baker was interviewed in a 2009 interview and he said, we weren't getting enough royalties. So we were going to quit. Okay. Uh, and I've heard some commentators say that's a little difficult to believe because Helfer was an editor himself. Like, why would he leave Mike Carlin with a directionless book? You know, like, why would he quit out on a book like that? It seems kind of hard to believe that he would do that. And then I, they, they retooled this Shadow comic and started a new series, which was written by Gerard Jones, called The Shadow Strikes, I believe. Yeah. And that was set in the pulp era. And in the back of that, uh, Gerard Jones said, we sort of had to put this book together fairly quickly. So my, I believe what happened is DC pulled the plugs on it because it probably just wasn't making enough money. Yeah, it's exactly how I figured. Because it, yeah. it was a, it still is a challenging comic. Unlike anything else on the stands, really. You can imagine that they just didn't know what to do with this thing. <laughs> no one knew what to do with this thing. No, I don't even think, on some level, Helfer and Baker didn't know what to do with it. Right. Uh, I think it's telling. I think it's telling that the next uh, five-parter would have been a five-parter instead of a six-parter, right? Uh, would have been a six-parter. No, twenty through twenty-five. It would have been a five-parter. That would have been twenty twenty-one, two, two, three. Okay, no, six-parter. So it yeah. would have been another six-parter. Yeah, uh, that that was going to be their last. Um, so I can, then, uh... I can imagine after after these three. Uh, six parters and the two annuals that especially Helfer, if not Baker, would be creatively exhausted. So it's a comic that was ahead of its time, clearly, and also unique in that I don't think we've ever seen anything like this again. And I, I just had such a so much fun rereading these stories again after all this time. It's funny, we we did that series on Grendel, and I had really mixed feelings about Grendel after having read all those issues of it. You know, there were some issues I, uh, some storylines I enjoyed tremendously, but overall, I feel like the, the benefit I got out of it wasn't worth the cost I had to put into it, the amount of work I had to put into it. This is the opposite. The Shadow by Helfer and especially by Baker, to a lesser extent by Sienkiewicz, is like one of my favorite books ever now. And I've only read it a couple times. I think you feel the same way as if you've read it four or five times now. Yeah, I, like I said, Every time I go back to it, I, I find something new that I missed. I mean, and how many things can you say that about? I mean, it's just so, 
richly imagined, constantly uh, surprising, even if you've already read it. It's sort of interesting in a way to look at it from knowing what happens and still being surprised by some of the twists and turns that come along. So did Baker talk at all about Justice Inc. in that interview you found? I don't recall. I, I haven't revisited the interview uh, in quite some time. Justice Inc. was a two-parter prestige series. Uh, it was intended as such. Those prestige series at the time, they were printed on heavier paper with the cardboard covers. They were kind of like all the rage at that period when it came out. I know Tim Truman had done Hawkworld. Uh, Mike Grell had done The Longbow Hunters. It was in the same format that uh, they had done with Dark Knight Returns. Right. So there were all sorts of these projects. Some, you know, the quality varies, obviously. Some of them were better than others. Some, some deserve to be prestige series and some like Longbow Hunters definitely didn't. Uh, deserve prestige treatment, in my opinion. But uh, this was one that did. I, I thought it was. It's a. It's a fantastic little two parts, ninety six pages, and uh, it's never been collected except in Germany. It was collected. Interesting. And in a rather, yeah, in a rather interesting title. And now I can't think of it. Uh, that's too bad. I can't think of it at the moment. But it had a really interesting title in German. I'll see if I can find it. Um, but what was your takeaway from from Justice Inc? I thought it was a really interesting comic that contains a lot of fascinating elements to it, but in the end, it felt very, I don't know whether we use the word cliche, but it felt very familiar. Essentially, uh, we have this person who has the ability to change his face and therefore go undercover. And, right, he looks uh, like... like uh... He looks like Robert Mitchum when he's not. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is interesting, too. Uh, and he is a government agent who gets sent around the world in the post-World War II era as a revolutionary figure to convert to, to uh, essentially follow the Truman Doctrine, which is to overthrow foreign countries in order to turn them towards America. Book one is largely about that aspect of the work, as well as him uh, gaining some revelations about how and why this was done to him. And then book two shows kind of his awakening to what he is, to the to the evil that he has been doing, and then him uh, kind of turning turning around some of the mistakes that he had made. Uh, so it follows a very kind of clear and logical and heroic story arc in that you know, this is the dupe who, who wakes up and turns the negative things he's done into positive things. And it's enjoyable on that level. It's just not, it just doesn't have the, the kind of verve or anarchy. It's very controlled. It's very smart. It's very kind of focused. It's also kind of oddly dated in that it's a very much a West versus East, US versus USSR sort of bilateral struggle that's really of its time. In fact, even if it had been published five years later, it wouldn't have had the same impact, I think. But in July 89, when it came out, just as the Soviet Union was starting to open up, uh, it was a very pertinent story. Uh, and there really was a sense of 
the Cold War battles kind of coming to a head and this being kind of this emotional summation of what America had been through and how someone would navigate that world. That pretty well encapsulates it for me. I think I was a little more impressed by it than you are insofar as its storytelling. I think what you found to be predictable, I may have found to be its strength. To me, it was a, a very convincing redemption story in a way. It was yeah. also retribution. It, it's also re- retribution, though, mixed with redemption. So mm-hmm. you're sort of questioning his motivations and trust. He has been working for, I guess, what you would call the CIA to infiltrate all of these countries and to pretend to be these individuals so that U.S. intelligence can uh, take control or of, of a situation that's of a political or military benefit to the United States. And he's done this believing that he is hoping to improve the world, but then he comes to find that there are agents in the Soviet Union who have the same abilities that he has. Mm-hmm. And then he comes to discover, discover that the very person who was responsible, without giving too much away, spoilers, uh, the very person who was responsible for the death of his wife and child, whose deaths are just totally chilling, by the way. Yeah. And again, in keeping with Helfer's, yeah. in keeping with Helfer's sort of uh, propensity to depict death and violence as being the result of total uh, circumstance it's just like no sense of fate involved it's like a uh it just happens like out of the blue yeah uh it, it's deeply unsettling in a way so he comes to find out that the same group the same individual actually who was the head of this organization within the government who was directing him to do these uh these things uh was the very person who was responsible for the death of his wife and daughter and so he because of that very personal sense of betrayal against him, you know, and the first book is called trust and the second book is called betrayal. And then the betrayal is not only the betrayal against that, his betrayal against uh, the organization that he's been working for by going back and undoing all of the things that he has done in the first book, but it's also the sense of betrayal that he feels Mm -hmm. that's been really against him. So it's like, Betrayal for betrayal, eye for an eye. I found it deeply affecting in a way that, you know, the shadow, it's kind of like everything that tragic that happens to Kent Allard slash Lamont Cranston is is kind of like hilarious in a way. But here it's like, um, even though it's total science fiction, you know, I mean, obviously they're installing mechanical devices in place of his spine. They're going to help him control his facial you know, features and body build and everything like that i mean it's complete science fiction but it's it's relatable in the sense that this unsuspecting person whose good nature whose whose willingness to help whose abilities are being taken advantage of has been just his 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 whole life has been a lie basically i found it deeply affecting on on that level certainly the last scene really is a unique scene there's a speech that our character says, for 10 years I lived only for revenge, but now that the moment has arrived, I realize I should be grateful to you. 
have helped so many nations over the years, touched so many lives. Without you, none of that would have been possible. All my pain, all my suffering, somehow it all seems worth it now. It, it is like a true character arc in that he transcends his pain. He becomes knowledgeable about what he's done to the world. And he truly goes to a place where he wants to seek redemption. Right. And he does get his redemption. He is able to literally change the world. So he, be, he changes from being a villainous character to being a heroic character. Right, but unknowingly. More than that, he grows himself to be, to be a person who is more actualized in himself, I guess. But he's unknowingly villainous, I would say. I think yeah. he's an idealist at first. You know, I think he genuinely believes he's, the people who work for him in Justice Incorporated. You know, so there's an interesting there's an interesting contrast between his minions and the shadows minions who are totally devoted to the shadow i mean the shadow dies and they're all dressing up like him and continuing the good fight and in this case he's more or less abandoned by his minions they're enlisted by the cia and they're all saying no you should go work for them too we should all you know we're going to really make a difference by working with the u.s government you know uh, and they're trying to convince him and so he's he's sort of abandoned by them in a way and compelled to join the organization in part because of that. Um, he doesn't want to lose his relationships with those people with whom he's been fighting crime all those years. And, and then as they start to get absorbed into the organization, of course, he just by virtue of what it is that they're doing, he loses track of them. And then, you know, like in the second book, he goes to uh, find some documents about the scientists or about the research that was conducted that, to, that resulted in his surgery, which gave him this ability. And one of his previous minions is like working in a file room, dead end job. His, his life is just lost all its meaning you know it, it or or there's that the one the the female that uh had been working with him and she ends up becoming basically a prostitute for the government and sleeping with all of these yeah and their reunion is so heartbreaking yeah she she's like a uh oh what's the word a black widow with her character right and he so he finally encounters her and they have this last you know mo a tryst that's uh, you know like very bittersweet and and she essentially ends up committing suicide uh, mm -hmm. by by firing indiscriminately into a crowd and and getting taken out so it's deeply tragic you know this is a guy who's lost kind of like lost everything he lost his first family and then he lost his second family and it was all predicated upon a lie so I want to ask you about the art style that Baker uses here. And it's the thing that has stayed with me from the entire time I started reading this book, which is the very strange way he draws people's faces. Right. Faces are blurry obscure. or vague yeah. or obscure. Uh, it looks like this may be drawn with all in colored pencil or something, but we very seldom get a full view of somebody's face. We're in the shadow, we could read everybody's faces and see how they're feeling. Here, everything is deliberately hidden from us. It's no 
surprise a book called with that's got trust and betrayal as its two key features has this and it's also no surprise because it does show it kind of illustrates the plasticity of the character's face and his identity but it's an interesting storytelling choice that everybody in the book has this kind of under rendered face i wonder what you make of that well, I think it was absolutely intentional, obviously, to make these characters' faces opaque. And I think that in large part, it was because this is a series that's based around faces. This is a series that's based around identity and what is a person's identity? What makes them an individual? Uh, is it not just who they are, but how they look? Um, everybody's taken in by his ruse uh, because it's just so unbelievable that somebody can look exactly like somebody else um, mm -hmm. that um, it has to be that person uh, body movement body language body movements word choice uh, behavior all of those things seem you know it would be impossible for him to completely uh, mimic uh, some of these people's um, whole being. Mm -hmm. So everything that his mimicry depends upon is uh, physical. So I think it was meant to sort of underline the fact that um, in much the same way, I think it was meant to sort of embody that unknowable quality about people, um, which is who they are on the surface isn't who they are. You know, it's only skin deep. It isn't who they are uh, inside. Mm -hmm. um, I think it. I, I think it's interesting because his his whole the the moment where he finally realizes the ruse is because he finds that little you know the ace card uh, that has the old kind of computer cutouts where they would put the card into the computer and in this case it feeds into that mechanism that the doctor had put into him and it changes his face into the face of the doctor and that's how he sort of figures all of it out um is because he sees that face in the mirror of the face of the doctor so he knows that this is the guy who was behind it all that the fact that it's a person's face that's the tell i think to make everybody everybody's faces throughout this 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 whole two-parter obscure is to sort of place the audience in that that same level of unknowingness that people have about each other yeah and that there's this mystery at the heart of how every relationship grows now it is true that richard in the very beginning of the story is together with nelly i don't think that scene is given a time frame is it it's not, but it's from, it, it's kind of it, it undefined when that happens to me. Um, I wonder how that shapes the story. Well, I think that the, the, the tell for that artistic choice is the, that quotation from Voltaire on the back of volume one, men use thoughts only to justify their wrongdoings and speech only to conceal their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it's that sense of concealment Mm -hmm. of who the person actually is um 
everybody's pretending to be somebody else in this. Not just, not just Richard, not just the Avenger. Everybody's pretending to be something that they're not. Sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot in sea and one on shore. To one thing constant, never. Shakespeare quote on the back of book two, and it's so appropriate too. Right, so uh, the obscurity of the face is a embodiment of that obscured or concealed uh, motivation. Characters' motivations are concealed and obscured. And so it's just like a physical representation of that. Yeah. And it's interesting that all the different times that Richard is this man without a face who's transforming societies oddly at the front of the society, the most famous person in the country. So he's without a face himself. He has someone else's face. As that face, he's the president or the leader of, of this of the countries that he's in charge of. Um, so this interesting paradox there. His false face is the face everyone knows. His real face is the face that's completely hidden from everyone, everything. And uh, that's really also at the heart of what makes this character so interesting is not only are we always kind of concealing our true self, but he's on another level of concealing his true self in that he's he sublimated himself in some ways to being this false version of this other person. It, it's very, it's a very kind of separate existence away from everything. Right. Which maybe explains why, you know, he did kind of emotionally separate from everyone in detectives, or I can keep saying detectives, I think, uh, everyone in Justice Inc. Because um, he, the person who they knew is literally not the person who they would be able to see or talk to, be around. Right. Because he has to become someone else. And yet the great irony is in the end, he truly becomes himself after having been someone else for someone so many times. Right. Well, in the very end, as the ultimate act of revenge, he... He ends up becoming the very person uh, who who betrayed him in the first place. Yeah. He ends up becoming that agent who orchestrated the entire ruse to begin with, mm -hmm. which I thought was, you know, an interesting note to end on. <laughs> Everything come full circle, right? Right. So I mean, you couldn't ask for two two books that are bigger contrast for each other than Justice Inc. and Shadow, both based on the classic Connie characters, both kind of taking the characters in completely different directions than I think anyone else would do. Certainly different from, from any direction ever done with either of these characters that I'm aware of. As far as I know, every other Shadow story has been very traditional, other than the Chaykin and the Helfer stories. Uh, certainly, I think that's true of Justice Inc. or the Avenger. And I think it's intriguing that Halper and Baker were given this amount of freedom to really play with these characters. But I, I've never read The Shadow Strikes, and that, now I can't because of everything uh, with, with that terrible human being who I won't even dignify by saying his name. But I'm curious to if how much 
I, I, as far as I understand it, he was pretty close to the original storylines, the original characters. Uh, you're talking about he who shall not be named? Yeah, the writer of Shadow Strikes. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I never read it. I never felt compelled to read it. It, it just, it just seemed unnecessary. I mean, I, it seemed like they were going over the same ground that Denny O'Neill and Mike Kaluuya had gone over in the 70s in a much less interesting way. The title to the German single volume collection of Justice Inc. is Benson's Labyrinth. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great title. Yeah. And I don't know if Helfer came up with that or if that was somebody else's idea, but it's an, that's an interesting and a kind of evocative and I think appropriate title. So. so it's a shame these two never were able to do another work together because they seem to really trigger a lot of intriguing thoughts. They well, they did in a way them. because Helfer went on to, they did in a way collaborate in the sense that Helfer, well, he, he, he did, he was the original editor of Why I Hate Saturn, maybe Kyle Baker's masterpiece. Um, and he did bring Baker in as a cartoonist on his big books that Helfer edited back in the day. Um, but as a collaborative artistic team, no, I don't think that they ever worked on anything after this. And it is a shame. Um, I don't know how much of it was lightning in a bottle. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how much of it was just uh, the, the time and everything just sort of seemed to coalesce and come together. Uh, but they seem to do something on that comic, and um, especially um, especially in the Seven Deadly Fins, that it's quite memorable. And I, I just hard pressed to think of anybody else who's tried to do anything that just creatively unwieldy. <laughs> <laughs> creatively unwieldy. What a great way of saying that. That's a great way of putting it. Now, I can't think of who published it, but the entire series was reprinted in a three-volume series. Dynamite. Dynamite, thank you, which are now out of print. They're on Comixology Unlimited. So if you yep. have Comixology, you can read them for free. Great. Well worth reading. Thanks, Eric. Oh, thank you.